the chorus, words of the chorus that we just sang. Because ladies and gentlemen, the reality of the Christian's life experience is beautifully stated in the simple chorus we just read that we just sang. And it's going to be repeated and reinforced in the passage we're going to be looking at in the book of Hebrews. All hail King Jesus. All hail Emmanuel, God with us. King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star. And throughout eternity, I'll, we'll sing his praises. We'll be sitting in his presence opening our mouths, using our voice boxes. This is going to happen, folks. This isn't pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. This isn't some hope that we have. Maybe No, it is as absolutely firm as if it has already happened. That's the kind of God we have. When He speaks, it's done, even if it is an event that is yet future. It is as good as done. And throughout eternity, I'll sing His praises and I'll reign with Him. Throughout eternity. He has made us kings and priests. What were we? We were completely left to ourselves We were completely without any claim on a welcome with the Holy God. And what did the Holy God do? Because the Holy God, the true and living God, loves. Not just in a remote sense, in a real definite sense. He loves us so much and that while we were yet sinners, when we were as unlike Him as Lucifer, did you hear that? When we were as unlike Him and as remote from Him as Lucifer, He solved that problem. He reached through all of that laid hold of us. His Son paid sin's penalty for us on the cross. He satisfied His own justice. He satisfied His own holiness by God the Son became flesh, became a man, and then lived this per- the perfect sinless life Neither Lucifer nor the high priests of Israel nor anyone else could find any accusation against Jesus 
Pilate could find no accusation against him. I find no failure in this man, said Pilate. And that person of Jesus went to the cross. He was nailed to a wooden altar. And there did fulfill what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But he didn't stop there. How did that become my experience? Because there was a day when God reached through all of my rebellion, all of my blindness, and laid hold of me and said, you're mine. He gave me light. I was choosing and loved the darkness I was walking in. I loved it. I didn't want anything to do with the holy God. I'd, no way. <coughs> I was as unlike Him as I could possibly be, and that's fine. Thank you very much. And He stepped in and said, I love you more than you love yourself. And He gave me Light and life. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, the religious Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, came to Jesus. You must be from God, or you wouldn't be able to do these miracles I've witnessed. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. It's heaven's initiative. You must be born of water, as in the rain coming down, which is an emblem of the Holy Spirit. Or the wind, the spirit, the wind, spirit, wind, breath, all the same word in the Greek language. You must be born of water and the wind. That is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that is the Holy Spirit. It's heaven's initiative. Why, if you're in the kingdom, why are you here? Because Jesus paid sin's penalty for you and God personally tracked you down and said, you're mine. God demonstrates His own love toward us while we were still sinners. As unlike Him as we could possibly be, Christ died for us and then He tracked us down and made us His. And that that picture that Jesus gives us of the shepherd going out and seeking the lamb that's lost and finding it and coming home. He's got 99 sheep in the fold, but number 100 is missing. He brings home that sheep on his shoulders rejoicing. That is the picture of for every one of us. If you are in God's fold, it's because he went out and got you, rescued you, he put his shepherd's crook around you and yanked you out of the thorns. That's why they carry that thing with the big crook on it, is to get around the sheep and yank them out. That's why it's there. That's what he did. We're turning to Hebrews chapter 6. Stepping into this, verses 13 to 20. And I want to just, again, repeat where we are in this letter. 
the author, Barnabas, I don't go there, <laughs> we've been there, is writing from Italy back to North Africa. This congregation is a congregation that he probably had some personal ministry with. Because when he and Paul separated, Paul and Silas went one way, and Barnabas and his nephew John Mark went another way. They went to Cyprus, and then where would they have gone? The logical place is North Africa. And that's where this congregation is. And they, they heard the gospel, principally Jewish people. They embraced the gospel. They allowed God's mercy and love to embrace them. They've walked with Him. They've been loyal to Him. They've voiced the gospel in their community. And they have suffered for it. And they have suffered for it. And they have suffered for it. And they have paid a heavy, heavy price. And... They are being tempted away by a Jewish cult. Why? Because they really believe those people? No, because they're weary. And because they are weary, they're being drawn into something that will cause the persecution to decline or go away completely. And so as he's writing this letter, what Barnabas is holding before them is, stop it. Turn around, pay attention to me. God has made for you a place with Him that you can never get your mind wrapped around. In the adult Sunday school class, we're just finishing Ephesians chapter 3. And this is, I mean, it is, it is, they, these two passages go together. It's very clear that Paul and Barnabas ministered together for quite a long time because they are very, very similar in their messages, in their approach. And what is Barnabas saying to this congregation? Let, he, is exp, he is explaining to them the unbelievable elevation and privilege they've been welcomed into. Have they paid a price yet? Will they still be paying a price? Yes, but it will be well worth it. And one of the things he has done is he has explained to them, you know, we've got the book of Leviticus. We Jewish people, we have the book of Leviticus. I mean, we got called out of Egypt. We went to Mount Sinai and down off of Mount Sinai came the Ten Commandments and then... <clears throat> God sat down beside Moses and pushed through Moses' stylus. He pushed all the law and all of the requirements. And how is it that we could walk with God? And what did we do with all of this wonderful knowledge, the Ten Commandments and all these other things? We shattered it. We broke that law in every conceivable way. We began this worship service reading from Jeremiah 31. And what does God say to them in Jeremiah 31? I give up. <laughs> that law I gave to you from Mount Sinai, by the way, this is not a surprise to God. It was all part of their national training. <laughs> I gave you the law. I gave, uh, what did you do with it? You shattered it in every conceivable way. So, I'm going to replace the old covenant we're going to set it aside and we're going to do a new covenant 
I'm going to do a new contract with you folks. And what is the new contract? The new contract is I'm going to make a new covenant. And in this new covenant, I'm going to write, we're going to actually change your nature. I'm going to write your, the law on your hearts. Not just so that it condemns you, but you're actually able to do it. And I will, I will, I What is the law of Moses? The law that came down off Mount Sinai and everything that we find in Leviticus. Leviticus is, and all of that is, you will, you will, you will, you will, you will. And they didn't, and they didn't, and they didn't, and they didn't. And so the new covenant is, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. And I will. And the third I will is your sins and iniquities, remember, no more. I'll take that. Will you take that? I'll take that. New deal. New contract. New covenant. I'll do that. And what Barnabas does in Hebrew, he says, oh, by the way, I mean, if you, in, in his day, the temple, was still, the, the, the temple was still there in Jerusalem. And every year, uh, enormous crowds would come for the, some of the traditional feasts to this wonderful, incredible temple. Very impressive place, designed to be impressive. And here are all these impressive rituals and all of this and people in the impressive regalia and all was all designed to be impressive. And God says, oh, uh, new thing. You're not going to have your place of residence, your place of worship will not be the temple. I'm going to, you are welcomed into the heavenly temple that that's just a scale model of. I'll welcome you into my very presence. Now, this was not an unknown concept to them. One uh, one of the most powerful to me passages in the scripture is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah makes this statement. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's not at the temple in Jerusalem. He is seeing into the heavenly temple. He's being given a vision by God. I saw the Lord high and lift. Now, this is extremely frightening. To a once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in with the blood from a sacrifice just for him and put it on the mercy seat just for him. And then he'd go back out and get the blood for the people and come back in. And that was the only time. And if he did anything wrong, he would be struck dead. That's why they tied a rope around his ankle that was stretched out into the holy place because if they heard a big thud and the bells on the bottom of his robe stopped ringing, they could drag him out of there because nobody's going in to get him. What does Isaiah say? I saw the Lord. (laughs) Am I going to die? 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He's wearing a robe in the train. The train of the robe fills the temple. That's, that can slide right by us if we don't know the culture. And it's even our culture. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. I can remember as a kid seeing, I was a too young a kid when it actually happened, I saw the newsreels later, of the crowning of Queen Elizabeth. In what, 1952 or something like that? And she's coming into being crowned, and she's got a robe on, and the train of that robe is going way back there. In fact, it's so heavy, they have some people helping her by picking up the hem. Let me tell you something. Nobody's going to go over and go on the train of that robe. You, no, no, no. no uh-uh, uh-uh. The train of his God's robe completely covered the floor in the heavenly temple. Above it, the train of his robe stood seraphim. These are angels of fire. The word Hebrew word seraph means fire. These are angels of fire. By the way, there are seven of them. We know that from the book of Revelation that there are seven of them. The replica of the seraphim, which is the reality in the heavenly temple, is the seven-branched lampstand in the earthly temple. These are seven angels of fire. Above it, the train of his robe, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face because you do not look on God. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. Their feet are not touching that the train of his robe. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And back and forth, it's an antiphonal chant. This group is over here, three or four of them, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And over here, they're answered with seraphim chanting it. It's going back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. And by the way, nobody's getting tired of it. It's all reality. And the posts, this is the heavenly temple. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, totally get this. Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why does he emphasize that? Because Isaiah and his fellow Jews have given glory to false gods. On the top of, in Isaiah's day, on the top of every hill around Jerusalem was a pagan worship site. I just finished reading through Second, First and Second Kings. 
the amount of paganism that surrounded and dwelled in Jerusalem, including often in the king's own house, was shocking. I'm a man of unclean lips. I have given praise to false gods. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. How big an offense was it when Israel in the days of Samuel said, Okay, Samuel, we're done with this judge's routine. We want a king. <coughs> they had a king. The Lord was their king. And so when Samuel came to the Lord in, with a broken heart, Lord, I'm so sorry the people have... My, I, I have failed so badly that the people are now demanding a king and the Lord completely absolves Samuel. Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They already had a king. The Lord himself was their king. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the true king. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Yikes! That's not what he said. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The people that Barnabas is writing to. Barnabas is telling them, don't be bothered. The, the temple in Jerusalem doesn't hold a candle. The, the, the Levitical priesthoods begun authentically by God's command, beginning with Aaron. All of, this, all of this magnificence, you can just set that aside. That's minor league. That's minor league. God is welcoming you into authentic, true, full relationship with Him. And by the way, the high priestly order of that your that governs over you is led by your Lord Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was this fellow in the book of Genesis to whom Abraham, their forefather, and Aaron, by implication, because he is a descendant of, a descendant of Abraham, he paid tithes to Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. And his political position was king of Salem, king of peace, which became the city of Jerusalem. And as Barnabas will say, as far as the text is concerned, this guy just shows up. There's no explanation other than here's his name and here's his position. But he receives tithes from Abraham. What does that tell you about his place? And oh, by the way, so, and there's nothing about his 
what generations he came from, nothing about his father or his mother. And there's nothing later about his dying. He's just there. He appears. And so we're going to take that literary reality and then in Psalm 110, hundreds of years later, the Lord says through the pen of David, the Lord said, David writing, the Lord said to my Lord. This is the king of Israel saying, the Lord said to my Lord, I have made you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is David speaking about his own descendant and calling his own descendant Lord, which Barnabas says tells us that he's God, and he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's above. This is what you, Barnabas is saying to his readers, has welcomed you into. Can we suggest to you that you've been privileged you've been granted a privilege in God's creation that even the angels step back <laughs> hyperventilating <laughs> wow he took those people from deserving hell deserving hell to a full, outrageous welcome, wrapping his holy arms around them with a glad smile on his face. And so what, my readers, should be your response? That was all introduction. What should be your response? Let me pick up with actually chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you may show the same diligence of same diligence to the to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What it, what are the promises he's held out? Outrageous, immeasurable kingdom glory. How do you how do you get embraced by that promise? faith and patience or endurance whenever in the new testament you read the word patience always add in parentheses endurance you don't just believe the promise you keep believing it you keep believing it you keep walking in it you keep trusting it you keep placing that expectation on god and that does not offend god at all it's exactly what he wants exactly what he wants verse 13 for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you let me ask you a question how sure are God's promises he takes an oath upon himself For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. <clears throat> now when we go into a courtroom, and we're going to testify in a courtroom, what do they do? They hold a Bible in front of you. Why? Because you're not... Uh, we just might have some questions about your integrity. <clears throat> 
your truthfulness. But we know this book is perfectly trustworthy. It is integrity in print. And so we're asking you, mm, not necessarily the most trustworthy, we're asking you to put your hand on this and tell us that to the best of your ability, while you are testifying in this courtroom, you will be as truthful and speak with as much integrity as is represented in this book. And so we, the people lacking perfect integrity, place our hand on this book, which has perfect integrity, and we say, I will do my best to do that. God, because there is nothing with greater integrity than himself, does this. He puts his hand on himself and swears upon himself. A bare word from God is enough. But a bare word from God with the addition of taking an oath upon himself, that's more trustworthy than the movement of the stars. We base our calendar, we base all the, the movement. Physis, physicists will tell you we can, we, can, uh, be rely, we can rely on certain things about our environment. Our God is more reliable than anything we can find. Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he, Abraham, in this case, he obtained the promise. God gave a promise to Abraham. He was about initially about 70 years old. And he said, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, and he gave Abraham what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And then, and one of the things that's going to happen is uh, blessing, I will bless you, and your seed will be uncountable. You're going to have incredible, outrageous, uncountable number of descendants. And 20 years later, hey, God. Sarah and I aren't getting any younger. I'm 90. She's 70. No, she's about 80. Uh, and uh, we still haven't had that promised child, not even one. And God said, step out of your tent, Abraham. If you can count the number of stars, you can count the number of your descendants. You can count the sand on the seashore. You can count the number of your descendants. And Abram believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he kept pressing, and guess what? Still, ten years later, they still hadn't had a son. He is 99. Now Sarah's 90. <laughs> and, hey Lord, what's going on? And the Lord comes with a couple of angels and says to him, Abraham, one year from today, Sarah's going to give birth to a son. Oh, okay, yeah, right, okay. You know, I've had this son, Ishmael, that I kind of engineered, I kind of trying to help you out here, God. No, I will bless him, but he's not the promised son. 
And then three months later, he comes, God comes back again and says, okay, according to time, it's according to the normal course of thing, nine months from now, Sarah's going to have a son. Okay, and Abram believed God. And he pressed forward and pressed forward. And I love the fact that when in the, in the tent, when it was the one-year announcement, Sarah's in the tent. She's listening while God and the angels are speaking to And she laughs. Oh, yeah, right. I'm going to have a child at my age. And God says, uh, did Sarah laugh? And Sarah, oh, no, I didn't laugh. No, no, no. You laughed. You yitzhaked. You yitzhaked. Okay, if you say I did, I guess I did. And what is going to happen? When he is born, you're going to laugh. And, you know, and when he was born, it says that Sarah and Abraham laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And God, they fulfilled God's command and they named their son Yitzhak. Laughter. Now we anglicize that over to Isaac. But in Hebrew, it's Yitzhak. His, name, his very name is laughter. But first it was the laughter of unbelief. And then it was the laughter of joy. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 91. When Yitzhak laughter was born. But Abram believed and believed and believed and believed. And did he get what was promised? Yes, he got what was promised. That's the pattern for all of us. We are called to endure believe and endure even in the face of everything that says can't happen can't happen yet god says it will god says it will god says it will god says it will i'm going to yank you out of the grave and elevate you into my presence into this glorious temple and the seraphim will be looking at you in wonder But Lord, I'm suffering persecution and rejection and loss now. Yes, but believe, 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 believe. And you know when the laughter can begin? Now! We can rejoice ahead of time. We can rejoice ahead of time. We've got the promise of God that does not change When God said, what's that phrase? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That's the definition of the Christian life. And that's exactly what Barnabas is saying here. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. If we put our hand on the Bible, okay, that's it. God puts His hand on Himself and takes an oath. That ought to truly settle it. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability, the unchangeable nature of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God just gives us a bare promise, going to happen. God takes an oath on that, it's going to happen. Two unchangeable things. By this, we have strong consolation 
So in the face of our persecution, in the face of the loss that we experience in the culture that surrounds us as we are loyal to Christ, what do we do? We have strong consolation, comfort. We are fortified. We are consoled powerfully by that. We might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And so we have a hand on that promise, on that hope. Don't ever take the word hope in the Bible in the way we typically, oh man, you know, some kind of thing that may or may not. No, hope in the Bible is an absolutely firm, unchangeable thing, just as if it's already in, happened in the past. It, that's how firm it is. That is how powerful our standing with God is. We have re fled for refuge. We can lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Who is in charge? Who is in charge? And again, I'm going to repeat an illustration because it just is so powerful. Is it John Volanchek? John Dulinski from uh, Romania. 21 or so years old. Raised in the underground church in Romania. Was arrested for passing out Bibles. Spent a couple days in a cell. They brought him into this judge's chambers. And this judge is... He's seated across from the judge, and this judge is screaming at him. This is a judge who has a record of having sent lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people to jail for being Christians, especially if they wouldn't back down. And he is yelling at John, and what was John's response? Quiet non-response. <laughs> he simply didn't accept the intimidation. Why? Because he had a hope. He had a firm expectation. His soul was anchored. His soul was anchored. And suddenly, this judge who is threatening him with years in prison stops and says, Would you sing me a Christian song? And so John sang a hymn for him. And halfway through the hymn, the judge's face goes down to the desk and starts weeping. And when John finished the song, the judge sat up and said, when I was a boy, I would go to church with my grandmother and we sang that song. I will get you out of here. The man who just minutes before had been threatening him with years in prison said, I will be the instrument that gets you out instead of in. Don't tell anyone or they will put me in prison. And so John didn't tell anyone until he told us, probably a few audiences before us, decades later. 
Why was he able to respond? Because the reality that Barnabas is describing of an anchored soul was his reality. He didn't have to accept the intimidation. This, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. We are... God the, is present with us where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. All of heaven's resources poured out for our needs right from heaven's own treasury. Right from heaven's own treasury. That's your reality if you will walk in it. Walk in it. The people that Barnabas is writing to had walked in it, now have become sloppy. Now they're weak in the knees, their hands are... They have, and they needed the reminder. He's reminding them so that they can be restored to that place of an anchored soul that doesn't accept the threats and intimidation that has confidence in God's promise-keeping ability and eagerness. Let's pray together. Our Lord, this is the reality that we live in. There isn't a person in this room that has not experienced loss. There isn't a person in this room that upon experiencing that loss didn't say, God, where are you? And you answer us, I'm right here. And I will walk with you with all of heaven's resources available for you through this test to kingdom glory to kingdom glory. That's my promise, my covenant with you. Amen. We have the Lord's Supper. Yes, sir. Yes, please. Would you say that again? I am being broken daily by the love of God. I am being broken daily by the love of God. What's on the other side of the brokenness? Glory. Hold out an empty hand. Amen.